Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior, America. Steak. Four. Breakfast. So stand by. All right, everybody, welcome back for the second of our two Big Fridays edition of the show today. I'm Roe. Noah's going to be back in just a little bit. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back to America's fastest-growing political podcast, and that is Steak for Breakfast. If you're listening to this episode first, just hit pause. We'll see you in a bit, and go back and check out our first episode of the show where we hosted Colonel Rob Manis and Representative Matt Rosendale, who is looking to become Senator Rosendale after today's announcement. Uh, in addition to that, we talked about Donald Trump's big win in Nevada, Tucker Carlson breaking the internet yet again, and Joe Biden's ruling in his special counsel document deal. We're going to jump into the news again to get things started on our second edition of the show today, and I'm going to be joined by author, attorney, patriot, and friend, the lovely Christina Bob is here. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I always love coming on. And we always love hosting you. So we're going to be talking about the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Trump versus Colorado ballot removal case yesterday. And I'm sure everybody had a little bit of anxiety going in, but once things kind of got rolling, even some of the more progressive Supreme Court justices seemed to uh, understand that this is kind of a political hit job and took it for what it was. And a lot of the commentary that came from them alluded to that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, for the last month or two, however long we've been waiting for SCOTUS, for the appeals process to play out and to get to SCOTUS. Um, I've been saying, if this goes to SCOTUS or when SCOTUS rules, this is going to be a unanimous decision. It's going to be very clear. The law is very clear. It's unanimous. And um, a lot of people were kind of like, oh, you're just saying that because you're a Trump lawyer and you know that's talking about, no, 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 no. This is going to be a unanimous decision. And I felt totally vindicated listening to the oral argument because I do think it will be unanimous. I mean, I don't think... You know, the the lowest guess I've ever made was with Dinesh D'Souza yesterday in the middle of the oral argument. And he's like, what if only one or two come? And I said, okay, maybe it'll be 7-2. It's not going to be 6-3. It's not going to be 5-4. I think there's, I think it's much more likely to be 9-0 than 6-3. I agree. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. So, um, no, I thought the law is clear and people get so excited. And this is the problem with the media propaganda that we have is, People get all excited and say, oh, look, it, it's it's a, a real contentious decision, uh, Colorado versus President Trump. OK, but who else who else has weighed in on this? Uh, Michigan, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, New Mexico, Oregon, Washington, Arizona, Nevada. I mean, those are the ones that Minnesota, those are the ones I can just think of off the top of my head. There over half of the states in the union have weighed in on this and only one court has ruled against Donald Trump, and that was the Colorado Supreme Court. So to look at this case and go, oh, maybe it's close, it's going to be 50-50, it's not even 50-50 already. I mean, it's like 15 to 1. Yeah. Uh, So, no, this is not a close case. Uh, I hope it's 9-0. I I think it will be somewhere between 9-0 and 7-2 in favor of Donald Trump. Well, when you usually join us to uh, hear some of the radical left's greatest hits in in the news, And commentary that we play as audio clips when you're here for us to kind of dissect. We're going to jump right into the meat and potatoes of it now and get started with Judge Gorsuch as he was one of the first justices to weigh in on this in the back and forth with the attorney representing the case. Let's hear it. From holding office, you say he is disqualified from holding office from the moment it happens. Correct, but nevertheless... So so it it operates, you say there's no 
no legislation necessary. I thought that was the whole theory of your case. And no procedure necessary. It happens automatically. Well, certainly you need a procedure in order to have any remedy to enforce the disqualification, which is I under, That's a whole separate question. That's the de facto doctrine. It doesn't work here. Okay, put that aside. He's disqualified from the moment. Self-executing. Done. And I would think that a person who would receive a direction from that person, the president, former president, in your view, would be free to act as he or she wishes without regard to that individual. I don't think so, because I think, again, the de facto Why? officer doctrine would <laughs> nevertheless come into play to say this is No, the de facto, that, that doesn't work, Mr. Murray, because de facto officer is to ratify the conduct that's done afterwards and, and, and insulate it from judicial review. Put that aside. I'm not going to say it again. Put it aside, okay? I think Justice Lee is asking a very different question, a more pointed one, and more difficult one for you, I understand, but I think it deserves an answer. On your theory, would anything compel a, a lower official to obey an order from, in your view, the former president? I'm imagining a situation where, for example, a former president was, you know, a, a president was elected and they were 25 and they were ineligible to no, hold office, but no, nevertheless they were no, put into that no, office. No, we're talking about Section 3. And please don't change the hypothetical, okay? I'm, please don't change the hypothetical. I know I like doing it too, but please don't do it. Okay? Well, now, the, the point I'm trying to make is He's that, disqualified from the moment he committed an insurrection. Whoever it is, whichever party, it, that, that happens. Boom. It happened. What would compel, and I'm not going to say it again, so just try and answer the question. If you don't have an answer, fair enough, we'll move on. What would compel a lower official to obey an order from that individual? Because ultimately we have, we have statutes and rules. You know, when you see the back and forth there, number one, this guy, Jason Murray, he was in way over his head. I don't think, yeah. I don't think this entity representing the Supreme Court of Colorado really took into account that you could probably put all of their judicial experience together and they wouldn't be able to hang with one or two of the Supreme Court justice. Uh, you know, right. ne nevertheless, it was going to be nine. And, and then you got this guy in there. He just looks like, you know, whenever you see like a funny 80s comedy and then like the public defender comes in with a suit that doesn't fit and his hair all messed up and he's got like the little blue cup from New York of coffee and he's like, oh, don't worry, and puts the files all over the table. That's what this guy sounded like on TV trying to make the case well, for this. You're, you're right. And the reason we get there is because the left is has relied so heavily on the media trying the case for them to the public. They haven't had to worry about the record uh, at the lower court levels because most journalists, if they actually do bother to pull the record or go to the trial or listen to it, if it's available, they they whitewash it and write what they want to have happened to have happened. And so it it creates a veneer on these attorneys. And you saw Murray was struggling. He was really struggling. And the, the interesting thing is he actually clerked for Gorsuch. Yep. That was a very personal uh, exchange between, between the two of them. And Gorsuch, was he didn't say this, but what he was basically saying by asking him these pointed questions is, you know better than this. You know better than this. And um, the the other point that Gorsuch was making, he, he didn't make it directly, but it, it is implied in that back and forth between those two gentlemen was he's basically saying the moment and of course it did say this the moment a president commits an insurrection he's guilty and so he's basically saying 
you do away with the trial process. We have a criminal process for making that determination. And you're saying the president isn't afforded the luxury of the laws for which he is the, the chief executive. Yep. Wild. And, and you know, you could, you could see one of the probable intricacies of that personal relationship that Gorsuch had with Murray when he said, like, I like to make these imaginary hypotheticals, too. We all know it. I think he was probably alluding to things that they talked to behind closed sure. doors and, and, and back in the day. But, you know, it was a man. I, I just for, for listening to it from start to finish and then going over some of the clips last night that we're going to use on the show today. I was just like, this is I mean, I'm no legal expert. I'm definitely not an attorney. But this was wild at the way. I mean, the next clip we're going to listen to here is from Justice Elena Kagan. She's not a conservative in any way, shape or form. And the biggest question no. that she kept bringing to the table that Murray, you know, didn't bring the argument to answer was how does one state determine whether or not who gets to be president of the United States? Let's hear it. Most boldly, I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it. It sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal, national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan, and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between, you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? No, Your Honor, because ultimately it's this court that's going to decide that question of federal constitutional eligibility and settle the issue for the nation. And, and certainly it's not unusual that questions of national importance come up. Well, I suppose this state. court would be saying something along the lines of that a state has the power to do it. But I guess I was, I was asking you to go a little bit further and saying why should that be the right rule? Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination, not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation. Because Article 2 gives them the power to, to appoint their own electors as they see fit, but if they're going to use a federal constitutional qualification as a ballot access determinant, then it's creating a federal constitutional question that then this court decides, and other courts, other states, if, if this court affirms the decision below, determining that President Trump is ineligible to be president, other states would still have to determine what effect that would have. That's another thing that I thought was really weird about this case that Colorado brought as part of their argument for justification of their ruling, Christina. It was like, not only did they pick and choose non-convictions to make a ruling on Donald Trump, he's never been charged or convicted of anything like insurrection or sedition or anything like that. In addition to that, it seemed like they were cherry picking between like state and federal rights where it became like convenient for them to make this argument, which is, again, something that if you're if you're trying to form a solid base to kind of prove your argument, you can't say like the states have the rights here, but we want the the, the federal parts regarding the Constitution acknowledged here. And then the Supreme Court's going to make a determination on this. So we don't really have to prove anything. We're just asking you to, like, take our hypothetical and, and, and then make a ruling on it. It was really poorly put together in my opinion but you're more of a an expert you know the inside of a courtroom what do you think well i i agree and i think it's so interesting one that you have liberals arguing for states rights um which is very much a conservative talking point a conservative platform really 
Um, and I think that's partially why he was floundering so bad is because he doesn't really believe in states' rights. No. He believes in federal rights. But the the other thing that I think is really interesting is that this oral argument is coming shortly after the Texas uh, border decision, right? Where they basically, they would have to be completely schizophrenic and say, okay, states have rights here, but they didn't have rights. Texas doesn't have rights to protect its own border. And what I think is really interesting about that, as much as I hate that border decision, I actually think it's really helpful in this scenario, because what happened with that decision is Texas basically said, okay, thanks, Supreme Court. We appreciate your opinion, but we're going to do this anyway, because we're an independent state. And it really kind of flipped off the opinion and it flipped off the Biden administration and said, what are you going to do about it? And it turns out they're not going to do anything about it. They're going to let Texas do what Texas wants to do because they're not going to start a war against a state for the protection of illegal immigrants who are invading our nation. So what that does, I, and why I bring that case up for this is because I think it sends a message to the United States Supreme Court that says, how relevant do you want to be? Right. If you want the states to respect your opinion, respect the states. If you don't want the, the states to respect your opinion, then don't respect the states. And in this case, the way they respect the states is make this a federal issue for the people that live, as Justice Justice Kagan was saying, for the people who live in Wisconsin, protect them from the crazy court in Colorado and say, no, 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 we're not going to let one crazy court in Colorado change the the possibility for people in Michigan because they want to elect someone of their choosing. So even the decision of states' rights, it's flipped, it's reversed in this case. The way you protect people in each of these states is by making this a, a what it truly is, is a federal issue. And I think the Supreme Court recognizes that if they continue to play politics and play these stupid games that nobody agrees with, they're rendering themselves irrelevant and it's going to it's going to really, really hurt the nation. And so I think that Texas border case is going to cause them to think twice before doing something that they know the entire nation is going to hate. They knew the nation was going to hate that ruling and they did it anyway. And um, I think, I think it's going to cause them to pucker on this. No, I think so too. And then when you look at, you know, just what this sets up, I think the Supreme court ruling on Texas actually adds to the argument and makes a winnable appeal more likely for Texas. It just based off of the results that have happened since they've initiated this taking back over the Shelby park area and Eagle pass. In addition, I think just, I mean, we're, we're almost at 12 years now of Joe Biden and Barack Obama's similar policies where they draw lines in the sand and you could just trample it and nothing happens. And even when you get a Supreme Court to rule in favor of you in your own country, I mean, we've seen it in Eastern Europe and the Middle East, but we saw it domestically here for the first time recently with the Eagle Pass ruling on the, the razor wire and stuff, and, and they just on to the next disaster. So what wasn't a disaster, well, maybe for... Jason Murray was when Clarence Thomas got a hold of him and wanted some of the examples for the basis, which was the premise of this case. Let's hear it. States have created under their Article One and Article Two powers to run elections. But it would seem that particularly uh, uh, after Reconstruction uh, and after the Compromise of 1877 and during the period of Redeemers, that you would have that kind of conflict. There were a plethora of Confederates still around. There were any number of people who would continue to either run for state offices or national offices. So it would seem it, it, that would suggest that there would at least be a few examples of 
uh, national uh, candidates being uh, disqualified, if your reading is correct. Well, there were certainly national candidates who were disqualified by Congress refusing to seat them. I understand that, but that's not this case. I'm talking... Did states disqualify them? That's what we're talking about here. I understand Congress would not seat them. Other than the example I gave, no. But again, Your Honor, that's not surprising because there wouldn't have been... States certainly wouldn't have the authority to remove a sitting So what's the purpose of the... What was the purpose of the... uh, of Section 3? Uh, States were sending people. uh, the, The concern was that the former Confederate states would continue being bad actors. And the effort was to prevent them from doing this. And you're saying that, well, this also authorized states to disqualify candidates. So what I'm asking you for, if you are right, what are the examples? Well, Your Honor, the examples are states excluded many candidates for state office, individuals holding state offices. We have a number of published cases of states. I understand that. that. I, I understand the states controlling state uh, elections and state positions. What we are talking about here are national candidates. Uh, the, the I understand. Uh, you look at Foner or Foot, Shelby Foot or McPherson. They all talk about, of course, the conflict after the Civil War. And there were people who felt very strongly about uh, retaliating against the South. The- you know, when when you look at how. Justice Thomas kind of really laid into him with just a poorly presented angle on an argument and the fact that it seemed like almost the people that were bringing this case to the Supreme Court on behalf of Colorado wanted to put words in the justice's mouth and when they would ask rebuttal, they would get the answer Mm -hmm. that they were looking for and and it just wasn't going to happen here, Christina, don't you agree? Well, the reason they were doing that, yes, I do agree. The reason they were doing that was because they don't actually have good answers for what the justices were saying. This case is so shoddy. It's so bad. There's nothing about it. This should never have been a case. That's why so many of these other courts have uh, weighed in favor of Donald Trump, even though they don't like him and probably don't want him on the ballot themselves. They followed the law because it was so clear. The fact that the Colorado Supreme Court did this, one, is terrible. It's just a it's just a pathetic political play. But two, in a way, it does us a favor in the sense that it puts this issue to bed. So this issue will be put to bed once and for all. Donald Trump's going to be on the ballot. And I thought the the folks from Colorado got absolutely throttled by the Supreme Court. Oh, I think they did, too. And, and you know, when, when you just talk about how this, some states have already made the ruling and, you know, that it's already been shut down. I, I think the Supreme Court took a lot of that in, into context when, when they listened to these oral arguments presented. What did you think of the Trump uh, defense team that was there? I thought they kind of laid things out. It seemed like there was never really a struggle like we're hearing with the other side right yeah. now from Colorado as we did with the Trump team. It seemed like not only were they well-prepared, but they were tracking all of these things. And, and when these other states have already made the ruling that Donald Trump's going to remain on the ballot, they went and really dissected what the premise was for that ruling and then presented it to the Supreme Court yesterday. Yeah, they really did. I thought um, I thought Jonathan Mitchell did a really good job. Um, in there, there were a couple points where I felt like he was, where he conceded a little bit more than I would have liked him to concede. But overall, I thought he, he did a fantastic job. I think he was probably conceding in, in an effort. You know, whenever you're the lawyer, when a lawyer in a courtroom, you want to be seen as the most reasonable person in the room. 
And so sometimes giving a concession can help win credibility. Um, and I don't know if that was his tactic or not, but there were a couple of times where I was like, don't concede that point. Yeah. You have, you're right. You're right on that point. But, um, but I, yeah, I thought he was fantastic. He clearly knew the history of every case that they threw at him. Um, and yeah, I thought he was very, very well prepared. Well, last clip we're going to hear is from Justice Comey Barrett. She kind of didn't want to take the long route as a lot of the justice did. I mean, they they really dissected this guy's argument and threw it back in his face in just the most kind of epic way possible. But she just, <laughs> you know, brought it to the table. And, and, and that's basically what we all saw and, and know because we have eyes and brains and things like that. I mean, don't tell the radical left that. And that's just like, should we wheel out a monitor and just watch the video? And then just based off of what's on the video, make a ruling. Let's hear it. He's stuck. The first mover state here in Colorado. We're stuck with that record. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into whether the, the record, I mean, maybe the record is great. But what if the record wasn't? I mean, what if it wasn't a fulsome record? What if, you know, the, the hearsay rules are, you know, one-offs? Or what if this is just made by the Secretary of State without much process at all? How do we review those factual findings? Why should clear error review apply? And doesn't that just kind of buckle back into this point that Justice Kagan was making, you know, that we made with Mr. Mitchell, too, that it just doesn't seem like a state call? Three points, Your Honor. The first is that ordinarily, of course, this court reviews factual findings for clear error, but President Trump made the point in, in his reply brief that sometimes on constitutional questions that require a uniform resolution, this court can do more something more like a Bose Corp style independent review of the factual record. And we would have no objection to that, given that the record here, the really, really the facts that are disputed here are incredibly narrow. The essence of our case is President Trump's own statements that he made in public view for all to see. But then that's saying that in this context, which is very high stakes, if we review the facts, essentially, de novo, you want us all to just watch the video of the ellipse and then make a decision without any deference to or guidance from lower court fact-finding? That's unusual. Well, ultimately, President Trump himself urges this court to decide the merits of his eligibility on the factual record here at page two of his brief. He's never at any point in this proceeding suggested there was something. Hmm. It was hotly contested. It was fun to watch, and it was even better to break down with you today, Christina. We're going to be live linking all the great stuff we usually do in our show description today. We always link the Trump campaign, but we're definitely going to live link your book. Tell our listenership about it and where they can find you on social media. Thanks. Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. It's available Barnes Noble, Amazon, wherever books are sold. You can find me on X and Instagram at Christina underscore Bob. And you're the absolute favoritist co-host. Are you ready to take this over if I ever decide to give it up? Um, yeah, I will. I would never do it without you, Roan. Oh, I appreciate that. And we appreciate you. This is the loveliest author, attorney, America First fighter, Miss Christina Bob. Thanks for joining us today. And have a great weekend. Great. Thanks so much. Guys, we're getting ready to jump in with Kingsley Wilson right now. But before we do, let's hear from one of our partners. I think it's time we had a conversation about a good night's sleep. Pillow King of Minnesota, Mike Lindell, and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family, has been cranking out savings down at MyPillow for over 20 years. And for the first time in 20 years, they've changed the long-standing MyPillow and now have the MyPillow version 2.0. You enter promo code STAKE at checkout, you're going to get buy one, get one free. In addition to that, they've got great savings on all things like MyPillow dog beds, the Air Lindell version 1 and 2, My Slippers, and Giza Dream Everything. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched My Coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. 
When you need a promo code STEAK here, you're going to get 25% off your order or 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyPillow.com forward slash steak for anything sleep related. If you want the coffee, MyStore.com forward slash steak. Or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative. 1-800-658-8045. All right, joining us next on the show today, she does digital media at the Center for Renewing America. She's also the National Committee Woman for the Washington, D.C. Young Republicans. One of our absolute favorite commentators, Ms. Kingsley Wilson. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Happy Friday and happy post biggest news day, probably in recent memory. I mean, there's always something going on crazy in the news cycle because Joe Biden's, I'm air quoting now, the president and Donald Trump's looking to reclaim the White House. So that's that's always going to be dominating the news cycle. But when you saw how about 12 hours during Thursday went down, I mean, I was uh, having heart palpitations by the end of the day trying to figure out what we were going to be able to fit into our show. Kingsley, you saw just about everything that went down, starting with Donald Trump's win in Nevada all the way down to the ruling on Joe Biden's special counsel, Supreme Court hearing oral arguments and Trump versus Colorado. And and then, you know, how both Donald Trump responded to his caucus victories and, and Joe Biden responded to the results from his special counsel. It's just made for a really big news day. And we're going to talk about a lot of that with you right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. It was a crazy jam-packed day. And I'm I'm used to that, you know, post-2016, I think Trump's kind of made the news cycle pretty hectic. But this week in particular, there was a ton going on, um, as you mentioned, with a lot of court rulings. We're just experiencing Democrat-led lawfare in this country right now, and that has made for massive headlines. And I think also it's increased support for Donald Trump, right? We are seeing these attacks, these partisan naked political actors going after him only increase his poll numbers and only just drive more MAGA people to the polls as we saw in Nevada. So I think things are looking up for Trump amid all the chaos. He's kind of a candidate that has always, chaos sits well with him, right? He likes um, the craziness. He likes the news media, the attention. Um, So I think things are looking up for President Trump this week. Absolutely. You know what? Every funny like old school military movie, whether it's like Vietnam setting or World War II setting, there's always like when enemy fire is coming in, there's always one person who just kind of walks through it and is like acting like nothing is going on. And that's what I see Donald Trump like in the midst of all these shots that people are taking. I mean, you've seen just about all the lawfare fall apart. I think when the Supreme Court finally hears oral arguments on presidential immunity, that's going to be another win for him yesterday. They were not prepared in that ballot removal case from Colorado, which was surprising to me because... You know, the the person who represented the Colorado Supreme Court was a former longtime clerk for Judge Gorsuch. And they had a couple like banterish jokes back and forth with each other. But at the end of the day, Judge Gorsuch, you know, pulled up his big boy robes and said, sorry, Junior, I got to take you for a ride. And it was like even where you saw some of the more progressive judges like Judge Kagan and, um, you know, even Katanji Brown Jackson, they kind of were looking for ins to maybe not side with this, but then by the end they were almost contradicting themselves, saying, like, you really don't have a case, and this doesn't make any sense. Right, and I think the Supreme Court is absolutely going absolutely to smack this down. Um, I'm hoping it'll be a 9-0 decision, but it didn't seem yesterday listening to oral arguments like Sotomayor um, was, you know, obviously on our side, so Agreed. it could be 8-1. Um, but as you point out, you know, even – Kentonji Brown Jackson was, you know, making points that 
Trump lawyers have been making on the campaign trail, on television. Um, so I think this is a, a huge misstep by Colorado. I mean, this entire case, right, is election interference, plain and simple. They know that they can't beat Trump at the ballot box, so they want to take him off the ballot. That's really their only play here. And we can't let these courts uproot the democratic process like this. They cannot take away Americans' right to select their president. That is a fundamental right as an American citizen. You get to vote for the person that you want to be the president of these United States. Um, and, you know, partisan courts can't take that away from you. So I was encouraged, you know, to see just how sound the Supreme Court was in smacking around that libtard lawyer um, from Colorado the other day. And I think that, you know, they're going to just toss this one out. Um, and then again, as you say, move on to the immunity case. And that one, I think that they will also side with President Trump. I certainly hope to see that they will, because the president, of course, has immunity when he acts within the scope of his presidential duties, which President Trump did when he investigated election irregularities, right? The president has a duty if there is um, evidence of fraud in a national election to investigate that and to get to the bottom of that. We can't be a banana republic with elections that people don't trust um, or don't believe that their votes are being counted properly. So he had a duty um, in his job description to look into that, and he did. Um, and he has immunity from prosecution for that because it was within the scope of his duties. And you'll see a lot of lawyers on the left say things, well, immunity is never mentioned in the Constitution. Well, it's not mentioned specifically by name. It is a well-established tenant of our legal system. Police officers have immunity. States have immunity. When the federal government brings cases, they can argue immunity. Um, so this is, you know, a very well-established um, just practice. And for these courts to try to take that away from President Trump and only President Trump, right? They're not doing this to anyone else. It seems to be clear that they're making a tr Donald Trump standard here um, that won't apply to anyone else in the past or in the future. Um, the American people see right through that. They know what they're doing. They're trying to take President Trump out of the game altogether because they are scared to death of how he will stop the locker in this country and destroy these government agencies, fire these bureaucrats. They know that Trump is on a path to retribution and to America first, and they hate it, right? Because for decades, they've gotten rich in this city I sadly live in, in Washington, D.C., by selling out the American people. And Donald Trump's going to put a stop to that. That's why they're afraid of him. But he's going to keep fighting, and I think we'll see him win in 24. You know, and, and the radical left didn't do anything to help out their case yesterday. It almost seems like a deep state hit job. And it's because a lot of reporting has come out of, you know, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that Joe and Jill Biden have been reluctant to listen to anybody when talking about possible alternatives or, or other paths for some of the other people on the Democrat side to maybe get on the ticket for 2024 and run in this race for president. But then we have this special counsel report ruling come out yesterday and, and yes, they were able to confirm that Joe Biden was very, uh, you know, out of bounds in regards to handling these documents and what he did. And, and when you start to read between the lines, I, I kind of am making, you know, my argument here is that Joe Biden was writing a book, memoirs, and that his ghostwriter, he wanted to be historically accurate. And that's why you see in this report, there's a lot of, you know, notes written in the margins and, and commentary written in the margins, because I think eventually Joe Biden's going to put out you know, books that are that are going to represent his service up on Capitol Hill and then as the vice president of the United States before he took the Oval Office away from President Trump last year. 
But when you read in between the lines, you know, and, and throughout the hours of interviews that were conducted here, at least what was released to the public yesterday, the special counsel made it very clear that Joe Biden did not have the mental capacity to essentially sit on trial. Like they had a difficult time interviewing him and not knowing dates, times, family members, when his son died, what his years of service was as the vice president to Barack Obama, which was just a term and a half ago. You know, it's wild to see the accusations that the special counsel were able to pinpoint in regards to Joe Biden in this report. And now it sets a whole new precedent for what are we going to do here if he's not fit to stand trial? And they're using, you know, language that you would, I guess, kind of align with like people in old folks home or even hospice care. Like how is this guy supposed to be the, the man who's got his finger on, you know, making sure it's not the nuclear button and it's still the ice cream button. Right. I think that, you know, this report from special counsel, Robert Hur was absolutely damning. Um, and Republican voters, MAGA voters, should feel really encouraged and on fire. They should, you know, know that the MAGA train is going at full speed. Yesterday was really the nail in the coffin for the Biden campaign. Just totally damning um, what was released about President Biden. And of course, this wasn't something we weren't aware of, right? It's clear that he forgot how his son Bo died. He's done so on multiple occasions. He always tells um, families of, you know, military members who've had a son pass or a daughter pass overseas um, that his son died in Iraq. And of course, that's not true. Um, he died here from cancer in the United States. Yep. Um, so we, we've met, we've seen these examples, right? We've seen him kind of do his little Roomba routine where he just like walks around the stage totally lost and confused. We've known He's not there. I like to call him the cadaver in chief, uh, not the commander in chief. <laughs> um, but to see to see a special counsel for the Department of Justice say that this man is he basically said mentally not fit to stand trial. Yep. I mean, that is just crazy. How is someone mentally unfit to stand trial in our legal system? Yet they are supposedly the Democrats tried to convince us mentally fit enough to be president of the United States. It is absolutely preposterous. And I think that the more people that see um, what was written in that report, the better. So, you know, if you're a grassroots activist um, or you just have a large community network of friends, make sure you're talking to them about this. Because I feel like we saw in 2020, right, the Hunter Biden laptop story was really suppressed. We weren't allowed to share it on social media. We weren't allowed to talk about it. And then after the, the fact, after the election, a large number of people said if they had known about that, it would have changed their vote. So I think this is one of these times and one of these stories where we have to make sure every single person says that because there are a lot of Democrats who aren't totally in love with Joe Biden. And if they can read this report for themselves, I think they're going to either sit out or maybe even be convinced to vote Trump in 2024. Yeah. And when you talk about Democrats already holding the line, because listen, there's a lot of people who go on and make their podcast who have a lot bigger audiences and a lot bigger voices than we do here at Steak for Breakfast and are already saying like, oh, this is Michelle Obama's time to shine and here comes Gavin Newsom. Here's the deal. The only person who's ever at the end of that day going to make that call is Jill Biden. And, and honestly, unless they get Joe Biden out of there via the 25th Amendment, which I don't even think that Congress has the ability to do right now based off of the dysfunction level that they normally function at. You know, it's it's pretty crazy to see how people are just like running off the rails with this and, and completely missing the fact that you can't take the first self-proclaimed African-American vice president who's a female in the history of the United States and just completely say, well, if Joe Biden's gone, she needs to be gone with him. Like that would look so bad 
to just replace a, a so-called black woman with another black woman or a so-called black woman with Gavin Newsom or even Hillary Clinton, who you know is just chomping at the bit to get back in here. She's made so many trips to the White House. She's basically appointed herself as a national campaign advisor for the Biden re-election team. And then, you know, you've got everybody on the planet today, House of Representatives, Dan Goldman goes on with Jake Tapper this morning. Joe Biden is sharper than any man I've ever spoken to in my life. Kamala Harris last night. The special counsel report detailing Biden's declining mental capacity could not be more wrong and is clearly politically motivated in a two-tier justice system that favors Democrats, apparently. And then today, a senior spokesman for the Biden White House, Ian Sams. The president spoke powerfully last night about the case and there was no case. They're already running disinformation. You've got Joy Reid on The View today to their millions of viewers saying like, this is absolutely ridiculous and we just need to leave Joe Biden alone and let him win again. That I don't know how they kind of tackle this. Maybe you have some ideas on, on what they'd be looking to. Do you think Joe Biden makes it to the ballot box in November? I still think at this point he does. But uh, I, I think the people that they're looking at in the bullpen right now, I don't think they want to burn Michelle Obama on Donald Trump because I don't think especially getting in the game so late that she can beat him and then she's wasted for elections moving forward because Donald Trump will trash her for the rest of the time that he's involved with politics post second term and, and make sure that they never get back to the white house. Right. Yeah. Listen, I tend to agree with you. I think that Biden is going to stick in the race. I think they're going to, you know, keep their eggs in the Biden basket, so to speak. Um, but to see the Democrats really go on all these major news networks and kind of try to play spin game, right, and try to uproot this narrative um, and, and play, you know, just damage control, really, I think is telling. Um, they want Americans to live in the clown world, to not, you know, believe their lying eyes when they see Biden get up and, and give state addresses where he refers to individuals from other countries as a dead former president from another country. Um, so they really don't want Americans to see the truth. And I think that, you know, that is is in many ways telling of just the pressure that we are putting on them. They know that Joe Biden is totally incapacitated and they they have to protect him because if they give Joe Biden up, the repercussions are going to be massive, right? We're going to have President Trump come in, as I've said, and totally destroy this woke and weaponized deep state, get rid of all of these agencies funding, you know, stop sending money overseas to to their money laundering operations yep. in Ukraine and NGOs all over the world. We're going to close the border. We're going to put a stop to their destruction of America. So they have to kind of cover up Biden as well as they can. And I, I think you see them trying to do that across mainstream media today. But the most, I think, poignant question here is if Joe Biden is this mentally incapacitated, who is running the White House, right? That's always been kind of the scariest question to me. There's no head on the snake um, or maybe there is, but we don't know who it is. Um, so I think we have to look at these these corrupt actors across different agencies, whether it's Secretary Mayorkas, Merrick Garland at the DOJ. These are really um, the actors that I think have most been an affront to our constitutional values and to the American people. And if we do win in 2024, which I think we will, we need to remember these people and hold them accountable. I wanted to see Republicans hold Mayorkas accountable this past week. Sadly, that didn't happen. Maybe it will this coming week. Um, let's release back from cancer and hopefully a vote will happen again on that. Um, but we just we have to remember who the corrupt actors are here. It's Biden, but it is also the Biden cabinets, also these agency heads, and it's these members of the media, right, that are lying through their teeth right to your faces. 
it's wild the way things are kind of shaping up. You know, we had the opportunity to sit down in our first edition of the show today, Kingsley, with uh, Montana representative Matt Rosendale, who announced his Senate bid today in the same state. And he assured us that congressional Republicans, especially those America First delegation that made a lot of the hard choices and were really put under the microscope by both sides of the aisle over the course of the last, you know, 12 months or so, are going to make sure that we hang that W in the House of Representatives next week when Steve Scalise is back up on Capitol Hill. I mean, for as busy as it was, I think we've kind of narrowed it down for our listenership. And again, we're always so appreciative of when you get to spend time with us. We're going to leave it at that. And we're going to live link everything you've got going on. In the show description today, the Center for a New in America, obviously, the D.C. Young Republicans, all the fantastic work you do there, getting all of these young people involved and infused into this election cycle. Anybody that wants to check you out on social media or anywhere else we could find you, please let us know. Yeah, I am Kingsley Wilson on social media. Love that you mentioned Rosendale, too. We've got to have Matt from Montana. He's an awesome candidate. I'm totally behind him. You guys have a great show. Uh, always love joining. So thank you so much. And we'll be looking to have you back again very soon. This is the National Committee Woman for the D.C. Young Republicans, who also does digital <laughs> media at the Center for Renewing America. Ms. Kingsley Wilson, thanks for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much. You too. It's an honor to have you at Mar-a-Lago. I hope you like it. Uh, it's worth a little more than $18 million is another case. It says worth $18 million. I said, uh, which, uh, which cabin are we talking about? But that's the, kind of, that's the kind of justice we have when they say that to try and build up a case. That was a shame. But that gave up so much. When they said that, that gave up so much that Mar-a-Lago is worth $18 million. They had it appraised for, as you know, 50 to 100 times that amount. We have a judge that that's what he said. And he's supposed to be ruling on me. But who knows? Maybe he'll be fair. I doubt it. But maybe he'll be fair. So I want to thank everybody. And by the way, we proved that case 100 percent five times over. That case is 100 percent proven five times over. We've never seen anything like it. He just wouldn't dismiss it. And that was Donald Trump yesterday outside of Mar-a-Lago. He had a mini presser shortly before he jet set in Trump Force One over to Nevada to celebrate the caucus win there. And he gave some commentary and some speaking items related to what went down at the Supreme Court yesterday, where, as you heard in our last news segment, they heard oral arguments in regards to the Colorado v. Trump case, where the state Supreme Court voted to remove him from the ballot in the presidential primary, therefore making him ineligible to be on the ballot for the general election there as well. The president was in a good mood, came out joking, talking about the value of Mar-a-Lago, wondering which one of the cabanas there was valued at $18 million. I think when you hear him talk about the arguments that happened up on Capitol Hill yesterday where the Supreme Court had the opportunity to absolutely nuke this ridiculous case that was brought before him in regards to moving Donald Trump. You know, the best part about the Supreme Court oral argument news story yesterday, if you're trying to read between the lines, is that so many states have already said, like, we're not removing Donald Trump from the ballot. So they already have every piece of information that went into those rulings to try and figure out why this radical Supreme Court who, you know, has all this dark money behind it, like Soros funded DAs, offices working in and around them as well. They already have a pretty good premise on to why this isn't ever going to hold any water. So let's hear Donald Trump weigh in on what he felt was going on in the Supreme Court yesterday as he watched it unfold in real time. The Supreme Court today, I thought it was very, it's a very beautiful process. I hope that 
democracy in this country will continue. Uh, because right now we have a very, very tough situation with all of the radical left ideas, with the weaponization of uh, politics. They weaponized it like it's never been weaponized before. It's totally illegal, but they do it anyway. Here come the planes. And it has to stop. Every one of the court cases that I'm involved, every single one, civil, whether it's the attorney generals or the district attorneys, you look at Fani in Georgia. Fani. They had many meetings with the White House and with the DOJ. They went there, eight-hour meetings. That was all staged. That was a phony hoax. And now you look at it, and it is a phony hoax. <laughs> hopefully that case will be dismissed in short order. It's a, it's a disgrace to this country. But they work together with the Justice Department and the White House, and not supposed to do that. Every one of these cases you see comes out of the White House. It comes out of Biden. It's election interference, and it's really very sad. Uh, I thought the presentation today was a very good one. I think it was well-received. I hope it was well-received. You have millions of people that are out there wanting to vote, and they happen to want to vote for me or the Republican Party, or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. But I'm the one running, and we are leading in every poll. We're leading in the uh, local polls, in the state polls, and we're leading in the swing state polls. And we're leading very big in the national poll. So it's been a very great honor. And, and you know, when, when you listen to what he's saying there, and of course he does all those trigger the left dog whistle words, like this is a witch hunt and a hoax and a mockery of justice. And he calls them like fake trials. Dude, that must burn up these DAs and judges when they go back and probably just wipe everything off their desk and throw it all over the place and then throw coffee at their junior staffers and tell them to go get them some more because, you know, they're trying to, again, save democracy. And Donald Trump just goes out anytime he has the opportunity to, and he's like, yeah, you know, funny witch hunt. She worked with the DOJ. No one believes it. It's a hoax. It's total crap. And I think, uh, you know, Noah, you're back now, and, and hearing how we did in the Supreme Court yesterday, it seemed like, Combine that with Donald Trump's big win in the Nevada and Virgin Island caucuses. It, it was a pretty good day for America First. Yeah, it's a great day for America First. I love his comment about which one of the cabanas is worth $18 million. Yeah. And and they want to vote for, you know, the Republican Party or whatever, but I'm the one who's running. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. No, it is. And, and you know, I, I just think that, President Trump's gaining steam right now, and they just don't know how to tackle this. They have no angle, and it seems like every time they try to lay out a new roadblock in front of them, it just completely backfires in the worst. They just didn't think that he was going to be able to bounce back from all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the biggest, you know, component to Donald Trump's success so far has been. They really didn't think that he was going to be able to do that retail politicking and meet with those smaller venues instead of holding like a massive rally everywhere he went. And they're like, dude, if he doesn't get to do the Donald Trump circus, he's not going to be able to do Donald Trump and it's going to make him be uncomfortable. It's been the complete opposite. It seems like Donald Trump would prefer to do these smaller intimate events to go out and be able to be a touchable person with the voters at UFC events and walking into restaurants and bakeries and pizza shops and like, you know, 
being surrounded by just a few people, a couple hundred people, and saying, like, who wants a piece of pizza that Donald Trump already bit? And everybody starts going crazy because they really like him. And I think that's the biggest, you know, thing that triggers all of these people. And that's why they keep falling over themselves because they just keep trying to put every single thing in front of them. And he, he doesn't see it. Like, I don't think a lot of people in politics understand. No, you could probably at least agree with me on this, how cutthroat the building industry is, especially in a place like New York City. Oh, real estate? Yeah. Fuck. Real estate, building, construction, all that stuff. It's, I mean, half of it's controlled by the fucking mafia, probably. Yep. Yep. And then when you talk about Donald Trump parlayed his success in the business world and in the building industry with Hollywood, what's more cutthroat than Hollywood? Yeesh, yeah. I mean, this guy's been rolling craps his entire life and coming up with the greatest hands in the history of hands. And it's like... Sure, things like Trump University or Trump Stakes never really, you know, got too much traction. But when you talk about the name Trump that's still in all of these huge, beautiful hotels and golf resorts, in addition to the fact that maybe you've heard of it, he was the 45th president of the United States. (laughs) That's another thing. They always try to pretend Mr. Trump is like what they try to do to dog whistle everybody in America first. That shit rolls off my back like so fast. I don't even see it. It's like if all you've got is name calling and you want to call Barack Obama, President Obama, Bill Clinton, President Clinton, and then Donald Trump, Mr. Trump, like that's literally all they got. All of these cases that they've built against him essentially are just complete horseshit. And where there might be some legal intricacies that come back and you know, maybe bite Donald Trump in the wallet a little bit. When you're talking about actual convictions and stuff like this, I mean, after this whole insurrection narrative is starting to fall apart in the Supreme Court in this Colorado case, you know how much that's going to add ammo to Donald Trump's case when it comes to presidential immunity? It's going to be ridiculous, especially with the Joe Biden ruling that we've had over the last couple of days. A Joe Biden ruling, ruling is going to be haunting him for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. He would then ahead of the Joe Biden special counsel ruling yesterday, defend himself against the allegations that he's an insurrectionist and and what's being discussed at the Supreme Court in real time. Let's hear it. I think it was an insurrection caused by Nancy Pelosi. This was an insurrection, if it was an insurrection, which there were no guns, there were no anything except for the fact that they shot Ashley Babbitt. Somebody from least four shot Ashley Babbitt. So unnecessary, so sad, so horrible. But there were no guns, there were no anything. But if you take a look at my words, right after, you take a look at my speech from the Rose Garden, which was very shortly after, or you take a look at my, I'm only on truth now, but at that time we were tweeting and I was on Twitter. If you take a look at those five or six tweets, you will see very beautiful, very heartwarming, statements go home the police are doing their job etc etc beautiful statements if you see my (laughs) statement made in the rose garden i think you have to watch that because today they said the words of trump now if you take a look at the words of democrats over the last period of time look at schumer's statement about the supreme court on the steps of the supreme court yep he sounded like a mob boss take a look at uh any of them take a look at any we we put together a tape 
of vicious, violent statements made by Democrats. Nobody brings that up. Take a look at Maxine Waters Maxwell and the vicious Waters. statements that she made. I didn't do that. I said peacefully and patriotically. The speech was called peacefully and patriotically. It's pe peacefully and patriotically. He said I said bad statement. It was the exact opposite. So I think you should take a look at the statements that I made uh, before and after, and you'll see a whole, a whole different uh, dialogue. Pretty simple. And I mean, even when you talk about that one minute post from it was Twitter at the time that was taken down during the Capitol riot. And that was one thing that they made clear yesterday. Some people rioted. This wasn't a premeditated insurrection. I think that's a big part of the argument that we're making right now. And I think it makes the most sense. What do you think, Noah? Well, and some of the shit that went down during the summer of love and all these other protests and stuff like that. There was no inkling of of any wrongdoing that was purported by the media on these people. It was always just like, oh, it's you know, fiery but mostly peaceful and all that kind of bullshit. Like, yes, people rioted. Yes, people did shit they weren't supposed to. Yes, people pushed cops, put, uh, pulled on fences and stuff like that. But regardless of whether or not Ashley Babbitt was crawling through a window into a zone that she wasn't supposed to, like getting shot with no warning... Like, that's fucked up. And then to have no oversight whatsoever and no no legal trial for this person that, that did it? I still can't believe that it went down that way. And this guy who has had a long history of documented mishaps at work, everything from uh, having to amend reports where he made false statements all the way up to leaving his gun in a public restroom, his duty gun and getting it taken. Uh, this guy had a long track record of making mistakes, and he definitely made one when he killed Ashley Babbitt in the Capitol that day as well. And yet he's off scot-free regardless. Well, of course he is. Donald Trump would segue ahead of the Nevada caucus results and take a moment or two to slap around Nikki Haley. Let's hear him. Oh, I love that question. Thank you very much. You just said it. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why she continues, but let her continue. Uh, we have a big one coming up, as you know, in South Carolina. And the polls are indicating that we're, we're through the roof on that one. We're, we're leading by, I guess, 35 percent, 35 points. Uh, so I don't know. I think she hurts herself, but I think she hurts the party and in a way hurts the country. But it seems to be dying. She did poorly in Iowa. She did very poorly in uh, Iowa, actually. She came in third place. Ron DeSantis beat her, although you wouldn't know that if you listened to her speech. Uh, she did poorly in uh, New Hampshire. She did poorly no matter where she went. I, I don't know how the results aren't in yet from the Virgin Islands, but I know she's playing it very hard. And in Nevada, she, she lost to no name. She had a no name, and she lost by, I guess, 40 points. So uh, I don't know why she continues, but she's a... Uh, you know, I, I don't really care if she continues. It's, uh, it's. Uh, I think it's bad for the party. I think it's actually bad for her too. Oh yeah, it certainly is. I mean, Nikki Haley's going to be accepted in in small circles containing Democrats moving forward. She is essentially becoming like a skinnier, more Indian Chris Christie. That's literally what she's becoming. I mean, we heard it 
earlier in the show when she was coping and seething about elections being rigged and she doesn't care about this state and look how good we did in the other two states that she lost in and she's solely focused on South Carolina right now where you know I was looking at the polls as recently as today and and the largest lead for Donald Trump that I could find he said 35-ish points I found you know several that showed him at 31 32 points above Nikki Haley right now and she's just in it to cause chaos to take away from the great job that Donald Trump's done up to this point in the primary process. And it's not like she's going to be, this will be the the piece of shit that doesn't do anything for him, much like Ron DeSantis is doing right now and, and just worrying about themselves. Falling. She's not going to be like Tim Scott or Doug Burgum or Vivek Ramaswamy who have essentially joined the campaign. They're the phone banking Ted Cruz's of this election cycle. But we'll see how much we circle the wagons between now and November One last clip of President Trump from this press conference, and you'll have to forgive me for the flight pattern over Mar-a-Lago combined with the apparent gale force winds that were going on at the time. Apparently, he didn't want these reporters in his house, though, so he did it on, like, the back door of the uh, restaurant attached to the golf club, but he wanted to smash Joe Biden around, too, and and talk about, you know, Donald Trump didn't know how bad of a day Joe Biden was about to have, but he, he surely made sure... He let the press know exactly how he felt about Joe Biden's recent job as president of the United States. Let's hear it. The world is in tremendous danger. We're in danger of possibly a World War III. And we have a man who's absolutely the worst president in the history of our country. Can't put two sentences together. He's not going to be able to negotiate with Putin or Xi or Kim Jong-un, North Korea. <laughs> not going to be able to negotiate with anybody. All he knows how to do is drop bombs all over the place, meaningless (laughs) bombs, except they kill a lot of people. It costs a lot of money. Every time you see a bomb, it's another million dollars, and it actually sets us back. We have peace through strength. This should not be happening. The Middle East is blowing up. It's blowing up, and a lot of people are being killed, and it's so unnecessary. You know, I have to admit, Noah, you could, I don't know if you're going to agree, Donald Trump seems more energetic and, like, I don't know, just dialed into like a lot of itemized components of of major talking points than he normally has been lately. Like, you know, he's really abandoned the national level stump speech to this point in the campaign to really talk. I mean, you know, yeah, Joe Biden's a piece of shit. He bombs the shit out of everything, semicolon. And, you know, every time one of those bombs drop, two things happen. Costs us a million dollars and people die. It's like better than just kind of looking for like the headline type commentary instead of like getting into like the nitty gritty. I mean, Nikki, Nikki Haley, she hurts herself. She hurts the party. She hurts the race. And it seems like now he's really starting to give like a broader stroke of why he has these angles that he attacks when he's either delivering speeches or just, you know, kind of having a meeting with a press gaggle like he did yesterday. Well, he's got a lot of real positive ammunition to use now. I mean, especially with everything else that's coming out. And then it has to feel good for him to see this shit that's just cratering with Joe Biden, where his his favorability, his polling, his mental health, apparently. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. It's got to go back to a big portion of this. The success that he's had so far, we have to keep talking about his team. Chris Lasavita, Susie Wiles, and then all the rest of the gang, Chris Miller, Stephen Chong, Boris who's going to be on the show with us again next week. You know, they have run an airtight operation. Do you do you ever hear leaks about people being not happy on the Trump team or that there's no. chaos behind the scenes? You know, I read an article 
And you would hear about it too. Anything negative would be huge. It's just like with the fucking, uh, all the other legal bullshit that Trump's going through. If there was any evidence of him being involved in any of this other shit, it would be fucking out and it would be being used to its utmost fucking capital. I, I read in an article this morning from Politico, not my favorite news outlet, but it looked like they had a little bit of insider commentary from the, you know, the Trump inner circle who appreciates us and and we're quite friendly with us as well, you know, saying that when they have their meetings several times a week, when they're done and they're wrapped, so people don't go and bitch and cry about the media of whether how their roles are changing or what angles they're looking to attack that week, they say, listen, before anybody gets up and goes out and makes a mistake by talking to the press, do you have any fucking grievances to air? And if so, what are they? Why are they? And what can we do to make it better? It's just those little things where I read in, back in 2020, and we all knew this was true. It was like the sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, were one component. Then you had the team that was there then, Jason Miller and Boris and a couple other ones, like Lewandowski, that were running like the national level campaign. And then you had like the Jared and his daughter, and but he had, it was like all different power structures. Now there's none of that. No one's in charge except Donald Trump. Everything runs through him, and his team makes sure they're happy before they go out and do work for him. I think changing it up that way and keeping it as simple and small as possible has led to these big successes so far in the primary. Yeah, all these all these different things. I mean, that's actually pretty brilliant to to hit everybody up and be like, all right, what's a, what's your what's your issue? What's your problem? Like. What can we do to fix it? That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Granted, I mean, it's it's not going to be like everybody's going to like claim some bullshit and then get paid off every meeting. Like if you come up with something and it's a serious problem and they have to get rid of you for whatever reason, like you're probably gone. But it shows well meaning on the on the behalf of the Trump team. So that's good. I like it. And they're just having fun. I saw yesterday Donald Trump secures a dominating victory in the U.S. Virgin Island primary. Here's a true social post from Donald Trump. Great news as we are landing in Nevada, getting ready to go to caucus. Word just came out that we overwhelmingly won the Virgin Islands. All delegates, almost 75% of the vote. I have just called to thank those involved. Those would be his caucus captains there. They are celebrating and having a great time, and they deserve it. This has been a very big day for your favorite president and the Republican Party and (laughs) democracy. (laughs) Because remember, it's on the ballot. It just seems like they're all having fun. And I think that's a big difference in 2020, coming out of COVID, two impeachments. Every single thing he did, they just tried to, like, steamroll and run over. And it's just not working this time. They haven't changed. And Donald Trump, like we already talked about, who has an extensive background in business, in building, and in Hollywood, has seen snakes his entire life and... I think these people, even though they're well-known in the political community, are kind of like the B-team when it comes to how real people in the world act when they're trying to fuck you over and ruin your career. And I think it's part of that adaptation that has led to the success of the Trump campaign so far. Guys, wherever you're listening to the show today, last call. Just make sure you're downloading our podcast, your electronic device. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. And then on social media, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast accounts, follow them, hit the notification bell, never miss out on anything that's going on on the show, guests, content, and make sure you're sharing. 
all those posts on social media as well. We're going to be sitting down with Paul and Gracia in just a bit. Got a few more clips here. So, Noah, you know how the bipartisan border bill finally failed and has been laid to rest? Thank goodness. Jeez. That was scary. I was afraid that was going to go through. Guess what? And it wasn't bipartisan. Fuck that. No, it wasn't. But one of the, air quoting, Republicans who worked on it currently censured Oklahoma Senator James Langford gave a quick comment walking into conference yesterday in regards to the impending second vote on the Alejandro Mayorkas impeachment. You want to think these scumbags have your back? Listen to what this jerk off had to say. It'll it'll fail in the Senate. Uh, If I can use the House term, it'll be dead on arrival uh, when it comes over. Uh, But it'll still be the same policy, even if Mayorkas left. We're going to have the same result because we've got the same president who's driving the policy just like we did under Trump. So James Langford and the rest of Republican, air quoting again, leadership in the Senate has no interest in having a voted on impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas put up into a Senate trial as per the process. Gotta love that, right? No, I don't love that. Well, why would you think anything different, especially when everyone goes out and says the actual, they're there. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat, who was also one of the authors of the non-bipartisan border agreement, jumped on with Chris Hayes and MSNBC Sunday morning. Noah, when you hear the slip-up that this guy had, you're probably going to go through the roof. Let's check it out. Negotiation didn't have a path to citizenship. It was entirely on their terms in order to get Ukraine funding, right? Well, I mean, Chris, that's been a failed play for 20 years. So you are right that that has been the Democratic strategy for 30 years, maybe. uh, And it has failed to deliver for the people we care about most, the undocumented Americans that are in this country. This is also not 2013 any longer when we ran that play last. Noah, how do you feel about the 13 million undocumented Americans who live in this country? Mm, I don't think that's how that works. But you know what they're all craving for and chomping at the bit for, right? Starts with an A, ends with amnesty. Oh, we can't do that. We can't. No, we, we, we certainly can't. And to hear a slip up that bad, a Freudian slip like that, and for Chris Hayes not to correct him, over 13 million undocumented Americans living in this country. Yeah, no. My heart dropped when I heard it. And then I started to see the, po- the you know, everybody reacting on social media. And I was like, okay. Even though I rewound it and watched it a second time. Because I subject myself to this torture. I don't put clamps on my nipples. I just watch <laughs> CNN and MSNBC in the entire Sunday morning news circuit to torture myself. Christina Bob was so happy in our last segment, Noah, that we were going to talk about something she, number one, knew about and that's hearing oral arguments in federal court, and number two, something that was positive for Donald Trump instead of taking her through the usual shit show of negative commentary against America first. This is what slipped underneath everybody's radar throughout the course of the weekend Till, of course, you know, some very small accounts send memes-worthy related content to some of the biggest influencers, and then they try to get ahead of it even though I saw this in real time and, and 
kind of put it out there as fast as I could. Got one more before we jump in with Paul Ingracia from the New York Young Republican Club. He's also now working with the National Constitution Law Union. Guy's doing a lot of great stuff. He's been on the road with the Trump team in several states. He was last in New Hampshire with them. I'm sure he'll be in either South Carolina or Michigan as well. Always excited to sit down with him. And that was last night. Elise Stefanik, now Steak for Breakfast Enjoyer, giver of long, longer interviews than advertised when agreed to come on the show, went into the belly of the beast and sat down with Caitlin Collins on CNN. They talked about a lot of stuff. It was interesting to see their reactions when Joe Biden's special counsel report was coming out. It's kind of embarrassing for Caitlin Collins to have to defend that. In addition, they talked about Donald Trump's campaign. And, and when they got down to it, you know, Caitlin Collins, who's a complete piece of shit and just a paid actor because she used to be a conservative, I guess, journalist who just took more money and flipped over to Progressive to go to CNN, started asking Elise Stefanik about the possibility of her being vice president. Now, although we always say Christy Noem and Ben Carson are 1 and 1A in our polling, Elise Stefanik is definitely going to be in the Trump administration outside of her job right now as a house rep. I feel like Donald Trump will pluck and pick her for maybe a cabinet level position or a senior advisor or something like that. I don't know. She's kind of like in the gray area of outside just being ready to be vice president. And that's just because in my opinion, at the moment, there's a couple stronger contenders says nothing about the job that she does. I think she's fantastic up on Capitol Hill that House resolution to declare that Donald Trump is not an insurrectionist, that she co-sponsored what Matt Gates earlier this week. That's like so far ahead of the curve. I, I really do appreciate what she does. But they got into talking about insurrections, which is one of the biggest things that induces erections on CNN. Mm. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Tubin had some like negative commentary about the Results of Joe Biden's special counsel. I didn't even read. It was like a four-paragraph tweet I just quoted, and I said, why don't you go rub one off about it and put it out there on social media last night. But she said she would have done a job differently than was done by then-Vice President Mike Judas got his silver in the House of Representatives, Pence did, on January 6th. Let's check it out as our last audio clip of the day. The ability to pass legislation. And we did. And let's talk about the vice presidency, because you just said that you would be willing to serve in a Trump administration. Had you been vice president on January 6, 2021, what would you have done? I stood up for the Constitution. I believe no, it was what an would you have done if you were vice president? I would not have done bitch. what Mike Pence did. I don't think that was the right approach. I specifically uh, stand by what I said on the House floor, and uh, I stand by my statement, which was there so was unconstitutional overreach. The there was unconstitutional unconst overreach in states like Pennsylvania, and uh, I think it's very important that we continue to stand up for the Constitution and have legal and secure elections, which we did not have in 2020. And the tens of millions of Americans agree with me, Caitlin. Well, I would say the Supreme Court in the state of Pennsylvania said that that Republican passed changes to their law was constitutional. I like it. I don't disagree with her. She was nope. one of the House representatives who stood up with, you know, over 100 members of Congress and so many senators on January 6th to say this needs to be investigated. This needs to go back. We need to look at alternate slates of electors, etc. And you want to know what? For as tough as she's been. For some of the very hard votes where she's not voted with the rest of House leadership in just this session of Congress, I believe her. And it lends a lot of credit to the job she's doing. 
uh, for someone who's a young mother and, and woman in general who's in one of the top leadership positions in the Republican House. I think she's doing a fantastic job, and I hope she continues to do it. That's all I got this week for the news. We're going to be jumping in with the New York Young Republican Club's very own Paul Ingrassia in just a moment. But before we do, one last check-in with one of our partners. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Battleborn Coffee Roasters. They're law enforcement, family-owned, and they produce some of the best available specialty-grade coffee. That means all those beans have gone through an extensive process to remove all defects. Battleborn researches all their sources, farms, and milling stations to make sure you're not getting any pesticides or chemical fertilizers. Sit back and have a cup of their Borderline Mexico Chiapas blend while you're out sitting on an X or sitting in the office. High-quality coffee from high-quality people. Use promo code STEAK for 20% off your first order. Make sure you go check them out at battleborn.com. All right, joining us next on the show today, he's the communications director at the National Constitutional Law Union. He's also on the board of the New York Young Republican Club, one of our favorites, and a founding member of the Italian-American Civil Rights League. He also is going to be probably nominated by President Trump for a Pulitzer Prize at some point. Mr. Paul Ingrassia, welcome back to the show. Hey, how's it going? It's always great to be on my favorite podcast, Steak for Breakfast. You know, you're one of our favorite authors, and I, I, I tell you, the, the mood is just a lot better when there's more than one Italian person on the show. And uh, when, when we're here together, you know, I just got done making cutlets this morning. I'm pretty sure you can uh, identify with that narrative there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we've got the East Coast, West Coast Italians all over the place. So we're, we're definitely making a national uh, movement here with, with the Italian American Civil Rights League. And obviously, as you know, Italians tend to be some of the strongest uh, MAGA Trump supporters there are in this country. Donald Trump does so, love his Italians, too. <laughs> but, yeah, we're, 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 we're rocking and rolling. There's a lot going on this year. And, um, you know, there's... These are the next these next 10 months are so pivotal for President Trump's campaign. Obviously, um, I think we'll be talking about the Supreme Court a little bit and the news that came out uh, over the past couple of days. It looks looks like the momentum is very good in President Trump's direction between these primary results, and what we're seeing in the courts. But we just got to keep that going. Well, that's the thing. You mentioned the next 10 months. We saw about 10 months worth of news in yesterday's news cycle, Paul. And let's start with President Trump's primary race to become the GOP nominee. It, the pathway has never been clear for any candidate probably in the history of modern politics as Donald Trump upped his primary record to 4-0 ahead of South Carolina before Michigan and then into Super Tuesday. You have been on the ground with the president in multiple states. You've been at so many of the events, the victory parties, etc. Why don't you just tell our listenership, give us a little insight onto what being that close to the actual experience is like and, and what's it like seeing this live and in real time as you're out on the road with the president often? Well, it's really incredible. You know, I was in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago. I didn't get to go out to Nevada, regrettably, but I, I may, I'm, have some plans to potentially be in South Carolina. But, awesome. you know, he, the, the victory in New Hampshire was incredible. He visited the campaign office. Obviously, the, a lot of people are talking about how well run, how the Trump campaign in 2024 is, is like a well-oiled machine. Um, you know, they had staffers all over the place making calls, phone banking on the ground. So um, it was a really, really great experience for me to learn and from and, and to hopefully to apply that model to other states like Pennsylvania and even uh, states that are, you know, considered strong blue strongholds like New Jersey and New York, which, you know, uh, I'm part of several groups that are doing a lot in these two states to register voters, 
get involved in the presidential delegate process and just create more awareness for President Trump um, in these states. I mean, he was even talking about potentially doing a rally at some point over the summer um, in uh, New Jersey and even New York City. So all, all good, good things in store. Obviously, the, the main priorities now are those those six, you know, key swing states, Arizona, Georgia, you know, the Nevada, um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, so that that will be the primary focus for the Trump campaign. But, you know, our goal here is to just try to expand the movement as much as possible and give Trump not just a victory. I mean, obviously, there are many obstacles in the way between now and November, between these legal hurdles, between the ongoing uh, election corruption and fraud, which has not been fully resolved. And, you know, hopefully once we get this new RNC chair, um, maybe a little bit prog- a little bit more progress will be made in that direction, which remains a key issue. You know, everyone's talking about, you know, victory. We still need to get him over the finish line. There's still a ton of work to be done. But having said that, um, you know, the momentum seems to be very good. You know, we had the Supreme Court decision this past week where even the liberal justices seem to be, um, you know, uh, very skeptical of the argument for uh, Colorado trying to get him off the ballot. And we could talk a little bit more about that in a little in just a second. But, you know, it seems like the Trump campaign is in a very strong position right now as Biden, you know, kind of exposes himself for being, you know, the mentally um, you know, cognitively impaired, uh, you know, basically senile president that 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 we know he is. He's, he's basically an empty head, an empty vessel for uh, the globalists um, and, and obviously the Washington establishment and so on and so forth. We know he has no control over his administration. He's just a pawn there. And um, even in, in that case, he's, he's not doing a good job selling himself to his own party, let alone uh, the country at large. So, you know, we just got to we have a lot of work to be done, but I, I think we're in a strong position at, at this stage. No, you make some excellent points there. I think we are uh, sitting in a very good place right now, but at the same time, there is so much work to be done. There was one thing you mentioned before we get into this Supreme Court, uh, the oral arguments that were heard yesterday on behalf of the Trump v. Colorado ballot removal case, and that's there is something going on in New York, New Jersey right now like we haven't seen in decades, in, in so many presidential cycles in regards to how Donald Trump is really resonating with the people who live there. We know that you guys are starting a, a huge grassroots movement in New Jersey to get that state mobilized and back in play again. And Donald Trump has alluded to, you know, getting so involved in New York that, like you said, he he might, they asked him last week, oh, what, are you going to hold a rally in the Bronx? He's like, yeah, I might hold one there. I might hold one at Madison Square Garden. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. That would be so epic. I might even fly back east if he did a rally at MSG. And I just think it would be absolutely fantastic. But when you see things that just seemed inconceivable, maybe even a year ago, like places like New York or New Jersey being in play, and I'm talking about when you're under double digits in a place like New York as a Republican candidate, that is in play. And and when you see the way the job market, the economy, and now the way the migrant situation has blown up in, in New York City over the course of the last year or so, this could really all factor into to maybe seeing something we haven't seen in a long time in places like New York and New Jersey come Election Day this November. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the latest New York Times poll, as you alluded to, had him within you know nine points in the state of New York, his home state, you know, the state where he built up his business empire and the state where Alvin Bragg and Letitia James are trying to bring him down with Judge and go on with these civil and criminal trials going on. So I think Americans, even New Yorkers, um, especially in the suburbs, um, recognize just how 
bad the justice system has been weaponized against him, how, how unprecedented this is. And um, even they are, are beginning to say, listen, even liberals I'm talking about are beginning to say that this is totally uh, unlike anything we, we've ever seen before in this country. This is not American. This is this is a total we're ripping apart the Constitution, due process of law, uh, the fundamental rights, the First Amendment rights to speak out. Um, and even just like from doing business in New York State, if any of these cases actually land and he's he, and, and there's some sort of court order that prevents him from ever doing business again in New York State, that will set a horrible precedent, basically destroying capitalism in the city that used to be, you know, America's finest for, for innovation and industry and everything else. So I think all those factors are in play in a state like New Jersey, which is probably even more practical in terms of um, making competitive than New York. Yes. Um, you know, you may recall that, you know, just a couple of years ago, Jack Chitterelli, the Republican who ran for governor, just lost, I think, by less than three points. I mean, in New York State, uh, when when Lee Zeldin, who I have some issues with, uh, I'll admit, but when he ran against uh, Kathy Hochul for uh, governor, he, he only lost by six points. So, you know, looking at those numbers and I, I would think, you know, Donald Trump is a far stronger candidate than either um, Zeldin or Chitterelli. I mean, obviously, he resonates far more with the base, although obviously presidential elections are a whole different set of factors that come into play than gubernatorial races. But having said that, you know, you can make these states competitive. I mean, um, it, the, the, the main obstacle, as I see it, is, um, you know, the Republican establishment in both these states still continue to be very much in the never Trump neoconservative um, movement aligned. And then the, these are the people who control the state party. I mean, a lot more progress, I'll admit, is actually being made in New Jersey. A lot of promising um, de- developments. Uh, President Trump appointed Jeff Van Drew to be his um, uh, state director. And he has other people like uh, this group that I'm working with, the America First Republicans of New Jersey, who are actually hosting another event tomorrow. Um, they did one in Bergen County a few weeks ago. That one's being led by our good friend Mike Crispy and a few other patriots, you know, the, the two, they're, they're in lockstep with each other, all the Republican grassroots organizations in New Jersey. And that's why they're able to register more voters and get uh, more people on the ground and make more progress. So I, I like what I see in New Jersey. And I think, yeah, definitely you could make these two states competitive as long as you have everyone aligned and, you know, you have the organization in play to, um, to, 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 you know, get, get him where he needs to be. But, um, you know, I think those rumors, I'll end it here, you know, I think with potentially doing a rally either in the South Bronx that people are talking about Madison Square Garden, he'll definitely be doing events in New Jersey. That's that's for sure. He, that's his summer residence. But, you know, potentially New York City as well. So we'll see how that goes. But I think that would be very effective for him. And we want to hand him with a political mandate when he gets back into office, not just like squeaking by victory. We want to give him the landslide victory that he deserved so he could govern then very effectively without opposition from all these other, you know, people within his own party and the Democrats. And I think everybody sees the writing on the wall, especially when you look up on Capitol Hill, the amount of people, the longstanding congressmen and women, you know, who are just abandoning their posts and deciding not to run for reelection because they know that uh, for as rough as it's been for those guys this year, there's a good chance that the House can get retained and we'll flip the Senate with a very favorable map. And with Donald Trump back in the Oval Office, we'll see Agenda 47 passing with flying colors, hopefully, but in 2025. Paul, I do want to touch on this Supreme Court oral arguments that we heard yesterday. It's the Trump v. Colorado ballot removal 
uh, ruling from the state Supreme Court in Colorado, which made it up to SCOTUS. You had Jason Murray, who is a former clerk, believe it or not, of Justice Gorsuch, uh, bringing this case on, on behalf of the Supreme Court of Colorado. And when you look at, you know, the parameters of the argument they brought, it seemed like everybody on the bench, whether you were a hardcore conservative, kind of in the middle, or on the progressive side, kind of destroyed this narrative. How'd you see it breaking down? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you had like even a liberal justice like the Biden appointed Kentanji Brown Jackson questioning um, the historical meaning of the term insurrection and whether that even applied, whether that should apply to the events of January 6th, which of course it should not. I mean, there's no, I mean, it, if, if if we lived in same air times, the, the two, I mean, this wouldn't, this lawsuit obviously wouldn't be brought in the first place, but the two wouldn't even be in the same conversation. But, you know, it's very good to see justices like Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch um, really break apart this, 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 this whole argument. I mean, basically what they're suggesting, meaning, you know, the state of Colorado and the left, the leftists that support that is that any state could just arbitrarily knock off a national presidential candidate um, simply because, you're a secretary of state or, you know, in, in certain cases, people who may not even be democratically elected um, don't like the guy. So, I mean, that, that would set a disastrous precedent. I, I mean, it would be a logistical nightmare for the, from the Supreme Court's um, perspective for starters. But secondly, you're, you're, you're totally destroying, you know, the left always says we protect democracy. We've got to preserve our democracy. I mean, you're having a single state knock him off and probably the, the i don't think um even the, the people of colorado obviously would not support a measure like this let alone you know the country at large so um you know i, I think all that really became exposed in oral argument um and the whole insurrection thing really fell apart i mean you saw these pundits on msnbc basically crying afterwards um realizing just how bad uh, that oral argument went for the state of Colorado. And, you know, hopefully um, if this goes well, if it's a if it's a strong decision, if it's like a seven to two decision or even an eight and one or nine, oh, you may even have the entire court in unanimous agreement here. Um, that would bode well for the other uh, Supreme Court argument uh, coming down the pike uh, next week, which is the presidential immunity argument. Um, and that, again, you know, the president deserves immunity because, you know, as President Trump constantly posts on Truth Social, if you don't grant a president the basic, the bare essentials of immunity, then you're going to have every single president prosecuting his uh, successor if they switch parties um, once he leaves office. So it'll be a nightmare from that standpoint. It'll destroy the country. I mean, we're already at that point. So I think the Supreme Court, seeing how they approach this issue, um, it tees up, it fares well for, for, for the next issue that will be going before the court next week as well. Now, those are some excellent points you make. And, you know, when you look at the premise of the Colorado ballot removal, it's based off of opinion and hearsay and, and documentaries and YouTube videos. You know, right. they, they, they made the argument that Donald Trump was an insurrectionist, even though constitutionally you have to be charged with and convicted of to be labeled one. In addition, when you look at some of the other things in regards to presidential immunity, they're using the argument that once an insurrectionist that he's never been charged with or convicted of, always an insurrectionist. So if we're not charging him in the context of the day of January 6th, they're saying because we're always going to consider him an insurrectionist, 
we are going to charge him with cases and say that, no, it doesn't have anything to do with that day. It's that he's potentially going to be an insurrectionist again and like a repeat of it. It's just so wild that the way I was listening to, you know, I watched the whole Supreme Court thing. I cut up some clips last night that we played previously in this edition of the podcast. And it's like, when you hear the arguments, it was like the lawyer, Jason Murray, he wanted to put words in the justice's mouth and then use the answers that they would give him back as his argument. And, whether it was Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or Amy yeah. Comey, even Kagan, they just shot it down. And, and they're just like, no, we're not, we're not going to talk about things that aren't real. We're going to talk I, about only things that are real. And that's what we're going to make our ruling on. The argument is defeated. And this, this point is, is the, the slam dunk point. I mean, the, the term insurrection applies to ex-Confederates who rebelled against uh, the country, the Civil War era. I mean, this was a war that resulted in hundreds of thousands of lives lost. Sure. I mean, to even compare that to the events of January 6th, the, the, the two are totally, totally different. I mean, the, the, they can't be compared. And even then, knowing knowing what happened in the Civil War during Reconstruction, um, you know, all these Confederates, ex-Confederates were pretty much given a blanket pardon, yep. amnesty by President Johnson in 1868. And in the decades uh, following the Civil War, Congress basically ultimately gave an amnesty to all ex-Confederate officials, allowing them to return back to elected office. So uh, knowing how forgiving we were to the Confederate um, soldiers, generals in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, you know, you know and, and that precedent, I mean, there, there's no way that you can um, argue that, you know, these people who were there for a peaceful protest on January 6th um, to stand up for what they believed was an illeg- illegitimate election, which was an illegitimate election, should also uh, be denied those fundamental rights under, under the Constitution. So, you know, I'm, I'm confident that this will come out in Trump's favor. And it's a refreshing sign of relief in, in, in a year that's been you know, you've lost all common sense in our courts and our justice system and everything. At least we're seeing some semblance of normality within the highest court of the land. And we just hope that continues and we pray for, you know, the best outcome in this case. Listen, you can't make much more of an argument. You definitely made a better one than Jason Murray made yesterday on behalf of the state of Colorado and their Supreme Court. And, Paul, I think we're going to leave it there. We're going to live link everything that you've got going on in the show description today. There's usually an encyclopedia of places where we could find you underneath your name every time on the show. Actually, we'll have the National Constitutional Law Union, the New York Young Republican Club. We'll have the uh, Italian Civil Rights League and, of course, Donald Trump's (laughs) favorite Substack linked in there as well. But anybody that wants to check you out on social media, where can they find you, brother? I'm on Twitter, Truth Social, at Paul and Gracia, and I'm also on Substack, uh, paulandgracia.substack.com. Listen, I'm just going to put it out there for our listenership. We don't get this guy on the show enough. It's not my fault. I ask him all the time, but he's doing so much traveling and is on the ground working hard for President Trump, making sure, like we always say, that we get him over the finish line in November. You can't hold it against him. When we get him on the show, we really appreciate his commentary here. This guy's an author, a scholar, an American patriot, Mr. Paul Gracia. Thanks for joining us on the show. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you. You too, buddy. Probably the biggest into the work week we've had in a while Noah but especially since we did two shows in 72 hours but I think we nailed it nailed it as always if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the now over 330 other editions of the show 
Just be following us across every downloadable podcasting platform. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to the show. Hit the follow button. Make sure it's downloading to your electronic device. In addition, social media. Find us on Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Hit up our accounts. Follow them. Make sure you smash that notification bell. We want to thank all of our guests for coming down and sharing with us today. Retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Rob Manis. Author and attorney Christina Bob. Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale. Now looking to take his job up to the Senate next year. Kingsley Wilson of the Center for Renewing America and the D.C. Young Republicans. And the writer of Donald Trump's favorite substack. As you just heard from Mr. Paul Ingrassia, you guys all helped make steak great again. Guys, we're heading into the weekend. We need to catch our breath, but don't worry. We're hitting the ground running. We'll be back with two all-new editions of the podcast on Tuesday. We'll be back with Newsmax contributor Brian Leib, congressional candidates Elizabeth Hagelin will be joining us again, and so will Abe Hamaday, and the one and only Cash Patel will be here. So on behalf of the pod team, I'm Roan. Noah? Later. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and take care. You have worn out your welcome at Bushwood, sir. Is that so? Who made you pulp in this dump, huh? Bushwood? A dump? Well, I'll guarantee you'll never be a member here. Member? Are you kidding? You think I'd join this crummy snobatorium? But this whole place sucks. That's right, it sucks. Only reason I'm here is maybe I'll buy it. Buy? Bushwood? You back it up! Gentlemen, please, what's going on? You tried to choke me. <laughs>